You're listening to The Little Green Cheese, Episode 5. Welcome back. I'm Gavin Weber, and this podcast is where you can learn about cheese making at home. We've had an interesting week here with cheese. Um, what I've been doing is looking after an Emmental that I made a couple of weeks ago, and it's out of the cheese cave. It's been in the cheese cave for a week uh, at 13 degrees Celsius. Now it's out at, at room temperature. And uh, unfortunately, winter room temperature here is about between 18 and maybe 19 degrees. Uh, Celsius, but that's okay. Uh, the cheese has started to swell at both ends, and what I've been doing is wiping it down daily with a brine solution. So it has a week to go, and then I will wax that cheese, pop it back in the cheese fridge or cheese cave for another three months. So I think the eyes are forming quite well by the uh, swelling, so the propionic uh, Shimani culture I think is working well, so that's really good. Well, today we have a interview with another cheesemaker. This time it's uh, David Dawson from Manitoba in Canada. And uh, we talk about all sorts of things cheesy. It's actually more of a chat than an interview. So I'll let you listen to it. Here it is. So David Dawson, uh, the very same David Dawson that actually sent me some cheese harps all the way from Canada. He made some... Uh, some curd cutting implements, and uh, yeah. So David, as I said, uh, lives in Manitoba, and I'll let him introduce himself. How are you, David? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, good to talk to you, Gavin. Now, I've emailed you back and forth a few times, and uh, regular reader of your both of your blogs. But yeah, as you say, I um, live in Manitoba in Canada, which is right in the middle of the country, and it's about 30 miles from the U.S. border. It's pretty cold there in the winter. We get down to minus 35 or minus 40 Celsius. And uh, in the summer, we get up to about plus 35 or plus 40 on a hot year. Goodness me. Uh, so we have a difference uh, from winter to summer of about, you know, 70 degrees. And uh, so the roads and the buildings and everything else have to be built accordingly. Yeah, I can imagine. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I come originally from England. Yes, yes. So when did you emigrate to Canada? I came about 25 years ago, maybe 26 now, and uh, came to this particular place because, um, well, my wife was a teacher out here, and we bought a 10-acre spread here to have our bees. You know, we are a beekeeper as well. And, yes. And um, it was a very, very good place to keep bees in Manitoba. Oh, that's fantastic. So, um, so when did you start making cheese? Well, it was about two years ago, or around about there anyway, I was going to a second-hand book sale in our local shopping centre, and there was a book called The Cheeses and Wines of England. Um, oh, I've read I, that book. It's a great book. You have, yes, and I, I thought it was a lovely book. It was very um, descriptive, and um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And then a friend of mine had um, a Christmas present of a, a beginner's kit, and, um, and that included a video. And so I borrowed the video, and then I got really interested and started looking at YouTube videos. And, of course, I watched hundreds of YouTube videos and eventually found 
screening of Gavin on the YouTube. And I watched Goodness me, that rings your... a bell. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I must say, they're the best videos that I've ever seen on cheese making. They really gave oh, me thanks, the confidence. David. Yeah, they really gave me the confidence to get started and do it myself. And um, if anybody, you know, any listener, beginners out there are listening, uh, I recommend you to look at Gavin's videos. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, we had no classes or anything around here, so I had to jump in and do it myself. And it was those videos of Gavin's which really gave me the confidence to get started. Yeah, I'll put the link to the videos in the show notes, so that'll be great. So that's what kickstarts you. So what was your first cheese you made? Well, I expect it was your uh, cheddar <laughs> with peppercorns, but I didn't put the peppercorns in. <laughs> oh, okay. So like the farmhouse cheddar basic farmhouse one. Cheddar, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So how did that turn out? Very good. And uh, I made, uh, see, I made about, I don't forget now, 28 or 30 batches of cheese. And um, each, uh, well, I try to try to improve the recipe, you know, because you make it once and then you do it again and it's not quite the same and then you do it again and it's different yet again. I could never get uh, continuity, you know, so that I had a predictable end product. So most of what I've been making is like a farmhouse or a cheddar. But, uh, yeah, what should I say? Back in England, my favorite cheeses there were Cheshire, Wensleydale, Care Philly, and um, there's another one I think called Lancashire, which is a similar crumbly white cheese. I know Care Philly. Oh, yes, and, yes. And um, those are my favorites. And so mostly what I was making was turning out to be rather similar to those. But sometimes they ended up quite creamy with holes in, and sometimes they ended up dry and crumbly, and sometimes they ended up, what shall I say, having um, liquid seeping out between the cheese and the wax. Oh, okay, yes, I get that occasionally too when I don't watch what I'm doing. Um, well, so did you what? figure it out? So did you figure it out? No. <laughs> That's why I keep trying. <laughs> so, I've got to try of course. Back. <laughs> I haven't got it right yet. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of variability in milk too. So where do you get your milk from? Well, we have a a quota system in Canada. So dairy producers uh, have to buy milk quota, and they, all the milk has to be sold to the milk board. And uh, the milk board gives them exact quotas that they have to fill, or at least they, they buy the quota that dairy farmers do. And um, one is not allowed to buy farm milk. The, farm, the dairy farmers can get into serious trouble if they sell milk to the public. Oh, because, okay. Because you know, it's undercutting the, 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 the quota system. And the silly thing is that if a dairy farmer wanted to make his own cheese, in theory, he has to sell it to the milk board and then buy it back again. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. So, but mostly I use store-bought milk, and uh, sometimes when the some dairy farmers I know have over quota, see if they're over quota, they get penalised. Not so they they sort of throw it away. They might throw the two hundred gallons away at the end of the end of the month. Such literally a waste, pull, isn't it? Literally pull the plug and let it run down the drain. Yeah, that's so, uh, uh, no way to run an industry, is it? Well, I know, but it kind of artificially keeps the uh, the prices high. For the farmers, yeah. it makes, makes dairy farming a viable proposition. 
Yeah, you know? well, we we seem to have the opposite here, where the uh, the the big two supermarkets are um, are demanding price cuts from the the dairy farmers and and are selling the milk for a dollar a liter in the in the stores, which is unheard of. Normal milk was usually about dollar um, fifty, maybe maybe dollar seventy a liter. Um, but the prices are so low now that so many dairy farmers, the small ones anyway, uh, are going broke and uh, they're being consolidated into the larger, big um, commercial dairy farms, you know, the ones mm, where the farmers never see the cows, that sort of thing. Well, that's happening here. And a, a lot of the dairy, well, as a dairy farmer down the road here, has milked 800 cows. That's incredible. And so, uh, a lot yeah. of them have robot milkers where the cows sort of do it themselves. They go into this thing and they get milked automatically nobody yeah. there yeah. anyway that's a bit off topic yeah no that's fine so so store-bought milk normally or when, whenever you can get fresh milk you, you you give that a go so so you mentioned that you, you you prefer cheddars are there any other sorts of cheeses that you've made any uh, mold ripened cheeses or anything like that i've made a couple of batches of blue cheese one of them was really good and the other one not so good I don't quite know why. Uh, I think I didn't uh, pierce the uh, cheese soon enough. I left it too long. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the other thing is um, I haven't bought any blue cheese starter, you know, the um, Penicillium Rock 40, because it costs about 17 or $20 for the minimum amount. That, and, that's a lot uh, of money, yeah. Yeah, and it has a has a shelf life of about six months, so, and that that seventeen dollars or twenty dollars worth is enough to make five thousand liters of milk into cheese. <laughs> so you know, it's a lot of cheese. <laughs> I might you know do twenty liters or maybe even fifty liters, but the rest you know goes to waste. And so, yeah. what I used for my starters, I, I bought a little bit of um, blue cheese in the store, and I mashed that up and mixed it with the curds when I did the, you know, crumbled up the curds before putting it into the press. Yeah. Uh, and the first time it worked pretty good, and the second time it hardly worked at all. But other than blue cheese, I've made um, a couple of washed curd cheeses. One, I did oh, your, okay. mad, your mad cow cheese, or whatever it's called, was soaked in wine. <laughs> the drunken cow, the mad the drunken cow. cow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I didn't actually soak it in wine. I just yeah. made it without the wine. Uh, oh, okay, the other, yeah. The other one's an Edam, and that's still sitting there in my basement. Um, it must be a few months, six months old maybe by now. So you haven't tried that one yet? No, I, I'm waiting to, but I've got about uh, ten other cheeses that need eating first. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? I've got a, um, a kefili that I'm going to crack open today because it's, it's ripe. Uh, and then I'll have a Colby that's ready next week, and then um, about oh, about a month's time, and you know we wouldn't have got through those, so I'll have to backpack half of the cheese anyway. Um, there'll be a, an Emmental to eat, plus already in the fridge, in the normal fridge, so they're not maturing anymore. I've got a oh goodness me, I've got a Romano, I've got a Parmesan, and I've got a Camina um, cast that are all still in their wax. So you know I've got cheese coming out my ears at the moment. And you've got a family that, to eat it all. I've just got Well, meat. that's true. That's true. And they do like eating it, that's for sure. So so do you <laughs> give it away to friends or stuff like that? <laughs> well, I'm reluctant to give it away because 
it takes a heck of a lot of making, you know. You spend a whole day pretty well by the time you start in the morning and by the time you finish at night and do all the dishes and wash up and clean up and everything else. And then you've got to turning it and pressing it and waxing it and all that. You put a heck it of is a labor of, of love. Yeah. You put a heck of a lot of labor into it, and I don't like to give it away for that reason. It's just too precious. <laughs> yeah, I share mine um, usually when friends come over. So I break out a bit of, uh, a bit of the cheese, maybe a quarter of a wheel or something like that. And uh, you know, share it with friends over wine. That's the best people, way. I people think around, because people around here don't like it. And I live oh, don't in they? Well, I mean, I've given it to some friends who come over and visit, and they kind of discreetly leave it on the plate. And I live in a, <laughs> this. This is a, a bit of a cultural desert around here, you know. Oh right, okay. I mean, they think a gourmet meal is hamburger with French fries. Nice. <laughs> mm. And cheese is those is sort of factory-made cheddar is just made yesterday and it's got no flavor at all and you drop it to bounce up and probably hit you on the chin you yeah know? or it's wrapped in those plastic pieces of you know the the slot plastic slices you know exactly exactly yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway well, we're having a we're having a bit of a cheese revolution over here which is great where you know it's, people do try different types of cheeses and there's lots of little um uh, small cheesemakers that are, well, I don't know if they're small, a lot of uh, niche ones like uh, people having um, uh, goat dairies and, and things mm. like that, making their own um, uh, goat's cheese and, and then you know, making goat's cheddar and stuff like that. So some fancy sort of things happening there. And there's some small little factories that are popping up, but they really can't compete with the big the big factories so in, in, um, but you in, know the, the cheese is pretty good, so a lot of people eat it. So, mm-hmm. well, in Quebec, the province of Quebec, that is, uh, yes, they're much more forward-thinking uh, with their French um, connections, you know, and there are lots of small cheese-making artisan cheese makers there, uh, and they're allowed to make cheese out of unpasteurized milk. But as I was explaining about our milk board. Uh, and we have the food inspection agency and all that sort of thing. They make it practically impossible for anybody to make cheese and uh, sell it at places like farmers markets and, and, and have it in local stores. You know, all the big supermarkets, they're not interested in locally made stuff. It's got to be across the whole country. You know, Everybody, Every supermarket yeah. has got to have the same thing. So they try to sell it at farmers markets and things like that, but, but you can't do it, you know, you, because... Uh, the regulations are so strict. You can't get yeah. the unpasteurized milk for a start. Um, you can't, you've got to be fully inspected. Everything's got to be, you know, factory-type style of building. And uh, really, it, it kills it right from the start. And so people, a few people I know make it for themselves, but I don't know of any. I've never seen cheese at any farmer's markets or anything other than it comes from Quebec. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So, so that's the the milk board in your province of Manitoba, right? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the the milk board or the quota system is, is right across the country. The, across the country, oh, okay. but they're more flexible in Quebec, you know, because the people are more politically minded, you know. Yeah, and and the French do have a lot more cheese too. So that that'd be from their ancestry, I suppose. Well, I I remember reading somewhere that. Um, Britain, Great Britain, used to have something like 1,500 different cheeses, and France had something like 800. Oh, um, goodness. Uh, I think the, World War II kind of fixed that, though, didn't it? You're right. And you know what's something yes. interesting? 
Um, I, I read somewhere that in the old days when they had the British Navy, you know, uh, with Nelson uh, and when uh, Britain ruled the waves, yeah. uh, the main diet of the sailors was things like salt beef and hard tack and cheese. Cheese was one of their main uh, foodstuffs. And oh, there you go. So it makes me think that, you know, if you've got a huge navy to provide cheese for, all the villages and people who could make cheese would be trying to sell it to the navy, you see. Yeah, but, and they'd buy it at a premium price, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, I think um, didn't they, they, they changed, uh, I think, just during the first year of uh, World War Two, they started consolidating um, cheesemaking into larger factories mm-hmm. um, and started, uh, well... There wasn't anybody to work on the uh, the smaller cheese farms. Um, it was only the women left, and they made a lot of the women uh, work in munitions factories and that sort of thing, and the land army. And I th- well, that's from what I've read, anyway. So yeah, I think by the end of the war, the Second World War, I think they had um, three cheeses. That's all that was left. Yeah. Uh, the the Ministry of Food had designated what they had to make, and they had the three recipes, and that's what you had to make, and that's it. Mousetrap, yeah, mousetrap, or mousetrap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the good thing is there's a lot more artisan cheese factories popping up back in the UK again, yeah. um, you know, with the, the resurgence of Wensleydale after Wallace and Gromit and, um, yeah. you know, Stilton cheese and, and you know, the variants thereof. So that, that that's really a good thing. But did um, you know, incidentally, there is a blue Wensleydale? Oh, okay. No, I've never, I did, I've never seen it. Oh, well, hey, I can send you the recipe. It, it's in that Seasons oh, of England and France book. Oh, I'll have a look at that. Um, yeah, I probably can't really plagiarise it under the blog, but uh, I'll have a look go at making it anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah, it'd be lovely. All right, so what are some of your... Um, you mentioned some of your challenges around trying to get an even batch and something like that. So, you know, it'd go from dry to creamy to to uh, a little bit of water in the... Sorry, a little bit of whey between the cheese mm-hmm. and the wax. And what are some of your other challenges and what are some of your some of your successes? Well, let me put it this way. I've, I've only had one cheese that was so bad I had to throw it out. Uh, and all the rest have been fantastic. Oh, that's but good. I'm not that's saying, great yeah, success. I'm, even if they're a bit bloated or if they've got a few holes in them or if they've got leaking whey, they taste delicious, you know, and... And a lot of them lately have had that uh, sort of crunchy, uh, what's it called, tyrosine or something like that, where yeah. the protein crystallizes out and you get those little crunchy crystals in there. Yeah, uh, I've had that occasionally on some of the, the hard cheeses like um, Romano and Parmesan. It's, it's, it's on the outside layer in between uh, that and the wax usually. Not, not, I don't find that in the, in the cheese. No, no, mine's right in the cheese. In fact, I've often wondered whether to cut a chunk of cheese and wrap it up well and stick it in the post and send it over to you in Australia. But I'm not sure <laughs> that it'd survive the journey. <laughs> no, it probably wouldn't because it'll stop in the tropics somewhere, unfortunately, in a box for a day or so and probably go all yucky. Or maybe the customs people wouldn't allow it in. Or oh, maybe, yeah. Yeah, good point, unless it's shipped properly, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, having said that, that I have sent... Um, cheese to friends internally within Australia so I've waxed the cheese and uh, then vacuum packed the wax just in case uh, and shipped it off to some friends 
Oh, thousand kilometres to north, and oh, probably about seven hundred kilometres to the south. So, so, and that's arrived nice and healthy. And so, I, I uh, express post it, so it gets there overnight. Um, but that's worked well within Australia. But I don't know how it'd go the um, sixteen odd thousand kilometres from <laughs> from where you live to where I live. But mm-hmm. nice thought, anyway. Thanks, David, for thinking. Well, yeah, you'll just have to imagine the taste. I can imagine it now because it'll probably taste the same as when I crack open one of my wheels. Right, right. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, um, well, we've talked about your favourite cheese. What's your favourite cheese to eat? And it doesn't have to be one of the ones that you make. It can be any any cheese. Well, I always used to go down and, and buy, you know, every week or two at the store before I started making it myself. A nice little bit of either say Cheshire, the nice English Cheshire or double Gloucester or something like that with a good bit of flavour to it, you know, some aged cheese. Yeah. And uh, I'm not that fussy actually, but I really like that. I like to snack, if you like, on a little bit of cheese, you know, cheese and a plain cracker, you know, before going to bed or something like that, rather than having a, a package of salty chips, you know. Or, uh, anyway, that's my sort of snack, snack of choice. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's a good snack. It's a on cheese. Mm. Probably not good for me, but there you go. Oh, it probably is. It's better than a packet of crisps or chips. <laughs> yeah, right, Dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of ageing, how do you how do you age your cheese? Do you have a cheese fridge or a basement? or So how do you keep the comp- the temperature, you know, around about 13 degrees C? Well, by sheer luck, I have a, a cold room in my basement where I store my potatoes and carrots and things like that. And the temperature in there is about 12 or 13 degrees. Uh, at least oh, it fantastic. Is in, it is in the winter, and in the summer, it tends to creep up a bit. So in the summer, I, I transfer the cheeses to the back of my fridge. Not the ideal place, but uh, it's the best I can do, you know. Yeah, for sure. So do you have like a daily routine Will you, you know, turn certain batches or, or stuff like that? I certainly, when I'm making um, younger cheeses like Kefili, I just have a daily routine when I go home from work, kiss the wife, go to the cheese fridge, um, you know, <laughs> um, uh, brine the, you know, wipe down the Wensleydale or whatever cheeses I've got without wax on them, turn them and, you know, you haven't and got go it from in the there. wrong order and kiss the cheese. No, no, not at all. No, always kiss the wife first and then the cheese. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. You've got a place and you don't have to use electricity to heat it or cool it or anything. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned when you snack on cheese, do you have a favourite drink that goes with that? Well, it's funny you should say that. But I don't drink alcohol. It doesn't agree with me. So oh, it doesn't agree with me these days. It doesn't? It, it, no, it, it, no, not too much. Uh-huh. No, I don't really drink with, with cheese. I, I, You see, I find it rather like, I mean, you, you like to add peppercorns or sage or olives or who knows what to cheese. And yep. uh, my, I'm a bit of a purist. I like to have pure cheese uh, and eat the pure cheese, you know. And I, I mean, it's rather like you, you make homemade wine, don't you? Or homemade no, beer. not yet. Homemade beer, yeah. But I mean, people who make wine, or you know, if you bought wine from France, would you get? Would you buy wine with peppercorns or wine with sage? I mean, that would be an insult to the <laughs> to the manufacturer. Oh yes, wouldn't it? Yes, true, but, true. But, but so people put peppercorns or sage, or I mean, you know, excuse me, mention your two favourites, but 
<laughs> you know, no, that's um, fine. Horse, horseradish they seem to put into it, you know. Well, can you imagine oh, goodness. a nice bottle of red or chateau, whatever, Lafitte, uh, with uh, horseradish in it? I mean, it just, it would be totally unacceptable. But for some reason, people seem to think that you can add horseradish or onions or, I don't know, hot peppers to, to cheese. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, uh, mate, that's fine. If you're a purist, um, you, you do the cheeses. The flavours are subtle, and sometimes they're stronger. And yeah, I don't know. I just um, thought it, my wife likes all those additives. It's so like having a very I'm hot not, I'm curry. Not, you have a really hot well, strong curry. You can't taste the meat. Well, that's true too. That's true. Um, so I suppose uh, yeah, we've been talking for quite a while. So um, I'm just thinking. So do you have some words of encouragement for new cheesemakers, seeing you're the uh, proud uh, proud creator of over 26 batches of cheese? Well, I'm sure you've done more than that. But, uh... <laughs> uh, um, I don't know. When, when I think about it, oh, make one a fortnight. Oh, yeah, probably would be. Yeah, probably be getting up to about 50 batches by now. So, mm. yeah. Well, so, I, so what I... advice do you have for beginners? Persevere and write copious notes so you can see what you did last time or the time when you get a real superb batch, you can look back and see exactly what you did and hopefully repeat it. You know, how much rennet did you add? How was the temperature and all those sorts of things? And if you're a real beginner and still thinking about it, I recommend Davin's videos. Watch them all, lots of times, and uh, it'll give you the confidence just to get out and do it like Davin does it. That's oh, fantastic. Thank you very much, David. That's uh, given me a boost of confidence. I might have to go buy some milk now and make some more cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not getting a... I'd like your listeners to know I'm not getting a royalty on this. No, of course you're not. Promoting your cheese. I haven't actually read your uh, your e-book on cheese. Um, oh, you probably don't need to. You'd probably figure it out, most of it anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's a mystery, you know. It's like making bread. You can make bread uh, 50 times and it never turns out exactly the same until you get really, to get a feel for working with yeast. Yeah. And once you get a feel and it comes naturally, you know, with yeast, well, it's like cheese. You know, once you get a feeling for it, then um, you can see how things are, you know, whether the curd is ready to be cut or whether the curd is ready to be put in the press or what have you, you know. You can almost do it by feel. Rather than, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I do actually, because it's only probably been the last four or five batches where you can just sense that things are right or wrong, and mm-hmm. then intuitively you know what you need to do next. So if you don't think the curd's right, you leave it for another thirty minutes, and exactly. it, and then it or it firms up. There's no problems. No use cutting a weak curd, um, you know, and if. Uh, you know the temperature's not right. You can put your hand on the side of the pot and you know it's not right. So even though the thermometer's saying, you know, that it's at the right um, temperature and you go, no, that's not right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and especially when pressing, you know when to, how how far to, because I think you've got a cheese press that's very similar to mine. I know you've made it yourself um, and it's just got those two springs. You've got two springs on the side mm-hmm. and some wing nuts mm-hmm. that tie in it. Yeah. So you really can't tell exactly how many pounds no. of pressure. Yeah. So, yeah, mine's similar. So I have to guesstimate 
um, how tight the spring is, but you, you you get the hang of it. You know after you've done it a few times, is this too right. tight for that type of cheese or is it not? So, yeah, no, I totally agree with you, David. What I do, Gavin, is I put my pot in my kitchen sink, put the plug in, and fill it up with hot water. And that uh, I use that to raise the temperature of the milk. And, and when it's up to temperature, then I can just pull the plug out and drain the water. And it's a bit of a waste of hot water. But um, I, I've always found that doing it on top of the stove, first of all, you've got to keep lifting it on and off. And I've got a bad back, and it's a bit heavy. Sure, um, sure. But with my double boiler, um, my pot sits one inside the other. And doing it on the stove, it heats it up too quickly, and I can overshoot the temperature very easily. And so yeah, by doing yeah. it in the sink, um, A, it's a more convenient height for stirring and that sort of thing. And B, I can just pull the plug out and drain the water out without having to lift the pot on and off the stove. Oh, if it gets starts, so when it reaches temperature, that's when you um, you get rid of the water, yeah? Yes. Oh, okay, I see. So the, the, what, the hot water's about, what, 50 degrees Celsius, something like that? Something like that. And of course, most of the heat goes into your milk or into the curd or what have you. So you're not yep. really draining, you know, but you can put your hand in, it doesn't burn your hand. Because as I say, you yeah. start with cold milk and then you end up with warm milk and uh, the water in the sink is cooled right down. It's like, you know, getting in the bathtub. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds a, like a, that, that's a good alternative method because, uh, you know, I've only ever used the uh, the pot on the pot type method well, um, and, and used the steam. Oh, uh, has, it's has actually it quite balanced. Off? Never. Ever, never what? fallen off. Never <laughs> fallen off. <laughs> and it hasn't even looked like it's going to fall off because oh, I use I a. Anyway, anyway, you see it on the videos anyway. But uh, no, I have, I never have any problems with it. So, uh-huh. um, and I keep it on the the smallest um, gas ring on the hob, uh, on the stove top, and that way I can't, you know, I can't. All of a sudden, the milk goes from thirty to fifty degrees in a in an instant. So it it, it just doesn't happen. But look, mm. I think that yeah, for people with um, back problems or can't lift that minute, that amount of milk, especially if they're making more than eight liters then, yeah, I would highly recommend your method, David, for sure. Well, I generally make about, yes, eight, nine litres at a time, and I do one on one, uh, double sinks. So I've got one pot in one side and another pot in the other side. So basically, I'm making 18 litres at a time in two two separate pots. Oh, okay. So you're making two, two cheeses. Might as well make two cheeses instead of one. Right. It takes the same time. Exactly, yeah. That, that's why I've got two presses. Oh, okay. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I've got three presses and I, I do two cheeses at once when I make a larger batch. Um, so I just split the same amount of curds out of the big pot oh, yeah. into um, yeah into two presses and that works fine too. Mm-hmm. So I don't have... I mill the cheese and do the salt and all that. And when it comes to uh, putting the curds into the presses, I just split it up into two. So that seems to work fine as well. Incidentally, I use that brush-on wax. Yeah, what is what is that? What it's a clear wax, is it? Well, it, it looks more like uh, wood glue, but it's and it is a sort of I imagine it's a PVC kind of thing, and they call it liquid wax. It's probably got some wax in it. Uh, yeah, and uh, but it also has a mold inhibitor. So uh, you brush on a couple of coats of that. Um, well, you put brush on a coat, you let it dry, turn it over, brush the other side, let that dry. It's a bit of a pot palaver and then you still have to dip it in hot wax after that because it's still um, semi-permeable uh, the, first oh, time, okay. the first time I did it 
um, I, I thought that's all you had to do, and I had left the cheese aging in my, I forget now, it was in my basement cold room, and it gets shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It's getting like a parmesan. <laughs> um, so uh, I then realized you had to wax it as well, hot wax it. But it, the thing is, I've never had any mold, surface mold, under the wax since I've been using that. And I know you had a bit of a discussion on your blog with somebody who's getting red mold or something like that. Um, yeah. And I, I found that the um, that brush-on wax really stopped all that nonsense. Oh, fantastic. So is is it specifically made for cheese making? Yes, it's specifically made for cheese making. Oh, I'll have and to keep yeah, an I'm eye sure out your, for that. Your suppliers will have it there. Yeah, I'll have a look. I'll have a look. Yeah, there's only a few main suppliers here that I get it. Um, via mail the, order, so yeah, I'll have the a look. water-based stuff. You wash up your paintbrush. I mean, I use an old uh, little, uh, well, three-quarter-inch uh, artist paintbrush, nylon oh, one, yes. and I brush it on with that, and then uh, rinse out the brush, and then when it's, I turn it over and uh, later on and do a second coat and what have you, and yeah. uh, it works very nicely. It makes a bit of a inner skin under the wax. Yeah, so it doesn't melt when you then dip it into the hot the hot cheese no, wax or not no no oh so it must have a higher melting temperature or something does it well it's not really wax it's really like glue you know the glue which is on the oh. back of a pad of paper to hold it all together oh yes yes it's a bit like that so it's a bit like pva glue but not yeah, it it's is. food safe obviously yeah. yes exactly it's a yeah. food safe pva yeah. with a bit of um as i say a mold inhibitor oh okay that's great Oh, well, I could talk all day to you, David, yeah, but um, <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much for talking to me, David. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the many, many emails that we've exchanged each other uh, over the years has is, is been fantastic. It's been really – it's like having a pen friend in Canada, really. Well, you've been a, a guiding light to me on my cheese-making journey, so thank you as well for your, all your help that you've given me. No problems at all. In fact, I'll have another co- I'll have another video up online, ooh, probably within a week or so, because um, I'm just finishing off the Emmental. I haven't made one of those videos before, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that'll be up on YouTube soon, and I'll let everybody know. But uh, yeah, once again, thanks thanks for talking to me, David. Okay. All right. Thanks, David. Great. Yeah. Bye bye. Well, we got some important news this week. I received this news item in email uh, on the 19th of May uh, 2013. It says, Last week, MooView Dairy Farm was raided by Biosecurity South Australia. Milk belonging to herd share owners was seized along with documents of the same owners. So this is a, a herd share is basically where a dairy farmer sells you a share of a cow to get around a law where... The dairy farmer is not allowed to directly sell uh, raw milk to the public. Now, the way they get around the law is that the cows are partly owned by the people actually getting the milk, so therefore they're not classed as the general public. So the um, South Australian Minister for Agriculture, um, Honourable G.E. Gago, uh, defended the raid in Parliament, which is a bit strange, but because there is... uh, you know, it's of concern for South Australia, but there's obviously ramifications for the rest of the country as well. The minister during her talk 
quoted the food standards of Australia and New Zealand uh, risk assessments, uh, so we can only guess that the food standards organisation were behind it somehow. So what you can do is uh, write to your local parliamentarian in South Australia if you're a South Australians, uh, and if you feel strongly about the case, you can uh, lobby your uh, federal parliamentarians by sending them a, an email. All their email addresses are on uh, gov.au. Uh, and uh, there's no harm in doing that. Now, there was an update on the 28th of May, and uh, Senator Mark Parnell is intending to introduce legislation into the South Australian Parliament that would effectively ensure that uh, share herd operations are a legal means for people to access unprocessed milk. So this is going to be the first time that this is this sort of legislation has been introduced into an Australian Parliament, uh, so it'll be uh, uh, quite a, a legal precedent. So we'll see how this plays out. Um, like I said, it's not too late to um, talk to your local parliament, parliamentarian if you live in South Australia. Now it's time for the listener questions. Now the first list, listener question today is from. Todd Davis uh, was sent to me on the 27th of May. It says, Hey, Gavin, been watching your vids and reading your stuff now for ages. It's very encouraging. I have a couple of questions if you don't mind. Well, no, I don't mind at all, Todd. That's why I'm reading it. Uh, The first question is, uh, a year or so back, I went out and bought a whopping great do-it-yourself cheese-making kit with just about everything I thought I could need with every good intention. So I made a couple of camembert, no point starting with the easy stuff, and they looked fantastic. And the mould grew beautifully on the outside, etc., but inside there was a distinct unripened centre and an extremely runny, overripe outer, all encapsulated in the beautiful shell of white fluffy mould. It also had a smell that, to me, equated to ammonia. Any thoughts? Yes, uh, the culture uh, Penicillium candidum does actually, as a byproduct, produce uh, ammonia. So that's what the smell is. Um, what it might have also something to do with is the culture that you used in those um, do-it-yourself kits. Usually, they have a bog-standard, um, very basic cheese culture. Uh, usually, a, uh, a thirty or a um, which is which is quite a strong cheese culture and there are many different types of cheese cultures cultures by the way what i recommend is that you switch to a cheese culture called flora danica which is a really light creamy producing uh, cheese culture uh, and you won't have too many problems there so if you change to that uh, and don't forget that at about the uh, one week mark after the mold has uh, grown on the outside of your cheese don't forget to wrap it in um in, in cheese wrap, which is a, a, a microplastic uh, wrapping, and that way the mould won't get out of control. It's already formed the outer skin, and the insides will now form that lovely, smooth, soft camembert that we all know and love. Okay, the second question that Todd had was, my starters, slant lipase, slant rennet, are out of date by six months, and I want to start making cheese again. I have stored these in the freezer except the rennet. Will they be okay to use or will I need new ones? Well, 
uh, the use by dates are, uh, I don't know, kind of a recommended. I've actually used Rennet and Starters and Lippes that have been well over 12 months old, uh, sometimes up to two years old. I don't have any troubles at all. Uh, but I use vegetarian Rennet. If you use animal Rennet, there is, uh, there is, it, how do I say, it grows weaker the longer you have it. So uh, the vegetable Rennet, is not too bad. You won't have too many problems with that if you've got it placed there. But I think that the cultures will be okay. Um, just add a little bit more than you normally would if you think they're out of date. The second question is from Trudy from um, Port Stephens in New South Wales. She says, Hi, Gavin. I'm quite new to cheese making and I have been loving your video tutorials. They are excellent and have helped me a lot to answer many questions I had when I first started. I have made a few soft cheeses, feta, cream cheese, using yogurt. I guess it's not true cream cheese, but a lighter, very tasty version. Ricotta, mozzarella, and have done three lots of camembert as well. The camembert seems to be a little bit temperamental for me. I am trying to get the right consistency. First one was too runny. Second one was a bit too dry. And hope this third lot is just right. All taste great so far, though. Well, that's great news, Trudy. Um, like I said, uh, maybe swap over to uh, the the cheese culture Flora Danica uh, and you might have a little bit more success. And like I said, don't forget to wrap it. Uh, second part to Trudy's email is, I also have made kefili according to your instructions. I'm about to crack it next week, but I'm thinking about how to treat the cracked wheel after it has been opened because I can't eat a kilo of cheese in one sitting. I can't seem to find any info on the web about this specific question, so we're hoping you might be able to tell me what to do. Kind regards. Keep up the good work, Trudy. Well, Trudy, the second part of your question, I actually answered it in a post on the Little Green Cheese uh, the other day. It's titled How to Store Cheese. So have a read of that, and hopefully you'll get enough information. Uh, basically, it uh, talks about that if you have cheese that you want to eat within a week, uh, then wrap it in uh, greaseproof paper or uh, baking paper is another word for it in some countries. Just wrap it loosely and store it in the in the fridge in a uh, airtight plastic container so that it doesn't dry out. If you want to store it for longer, then uh, basically vacuum pack it. Um, there are cheap vacuum pack machines, uh, and you simply suckle the air out of the plastic bag and it seals. So you can keep the cheese at the same maturity or the same age for quite a while. So hopefully that helps. So don't forget, friends, if you would like to be interviewed on the Little Green Cheese podcast, then just simply send me an email, gavin at littlegreencheese.com, and I'll get in contact with you and we'll set something up. I can interview via Skype to Skype or via Skype to phone where I can call you on your normal telephone. Well, that's all we've got time for this episode. Don't forget that you can find upcoming workshop dates and all the recipes on littlegreencheese.com. You can also find my ebook called Keep Calm and Make Cheese, The Beginner's Guide to Making Cheese at Home. And it's available in all ebook formats, including PDF. You can also find my cheese making video tutorials within the ebook or on my YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Little Green Cheese Podcast.
During this podcast, you heard royalty-free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop, News Theme, and Call to the Dairy Cows. <laughs>